The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. Rough Beast, subtitled My Story and the Reality of Sinn Féin, is an extraordinary work. It tells the story of a young girl from a Belfast Republican family who was sexually abused by a member of the IRA. She was too scared to tell anyone and her life and health deteriorated. But when the IRA were told by a third party in whom the young girl had confided, they forced her to directly confront her abuser in what has been described as a kangaroo court. He denied everything and faced no consequence and it was only when two further accusations of abuse of young girls were made against him that the IRA put him under what they called house arrest from which he walked. When the whole story was ultimately published in the now defunct Sunday Tribune, it was the beginning of a long path of recovery for that young girl, then a young woman. But there's a whole more, lot more to this narrative against the background of the old guard of Sinn Féin and the IRA taking a back seat and with Sinn Féin gaining support in the Republic. The embarrassment that these revelations might cause the new leadership of Mary Lou MacDonald became an issue which is explored in this book. Now, this is a tale which may not be suitable for tender ears. It's author Maria Kahl. Good morning and welcome. Thank you, Pat. Now, this is a big book. It's a long book. It's a detailed book. But if you boil it down to its essence, it's about the destruction of a young teenager's life and ultimately its reconstruction into the woman you are today. Thank you. I think that that's the first time actually I've heard anybody put it like that, but it makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, I mean, it, I think I try to document through the book the damage that was done because other people took decisions. You know, my alleged abuser took a decision to abuse. The IRA took a decision to force themselves into my life, you know, and that really dictated the pace and the path um, from then on and how I reacted to it. And I found it very, very difficult in those initial years. You paint a picture of Belfast, which is uh, is kind of new to me because I didn't grow up in Belfast, but a, a small city where everyone knew pretty much everybody else. And uh, given your Republican background, your great uncle was Joe Cahill, um, where kind of everybody knew everybody's stance politically and and what they were up to. Well, it's very, yeah, West Belfast in particular, you know, North Belfast is different again for people, you know, growing up there. But in terms of West Belfast as a whole, you know, you have all of these feeder kind of housing estates off main arterial routes, if you like. And in each one of those estates, you know, everybody knows each other. It's a very insular, self-sufficient community. It's, you know, a lot of it, there are a lot of positives around West Belfast and I'm proud to come from there. But there were also a lot of negatives and I did feel that kind of oppression um, without even realising it. And I think it's only retrospectively yeah. looking back at it. I mean, it. you talk about routinely you check the car, for example, because there could be a bomb. Well, we all would have. I mean, we, we my, one of my uncles had a bomb placed under his black taxi. I had a great aunt who was bombed by loyalists and almost lost her leg. You know, my uncle Tom was shot on a milk float in the provisional IRA, official IRA uh, feud. Uh, actually, just in the middle, just as their ceasefire had started, he was shot uh, and survived. You know, so because we we were cattle, we were targeted, and you know, um, or we would have been targets, and we all routinely checked. Yeah, mm. it was just a part of life. It wasn't anything abnormal in relation to what other people were doing. Sure. Also, you know, but it's only when you look back on it you realise how abnormal it was. I think so. I think it was only whenever I actually left West Belfast and went and lived somewhere else that I realised mm. that there was a different way of living. Now, we know that the RUC was a largely sectarian uh, police force, so um, its writ did not run, really. If you were looking for law and order, the RUC was not where you sought it. 
Well, you weren't really. It, it was completely frowned upon and there were two elements to that. One, um, the RUC obviously were targets for the IRA and their families were also targets and there were people within the RUC who did serve their community with distinction and I mean that as a whole, you know, I don't want to paint them all. And you actually went on outings with members of the RUC as a kid. Yes, and you know, we enjoyed it. We went up the morns and they brought us ice skating and we were taken out to Coltran and different parts and then Sinn Féin put a stop to it because they put a picket outside the school gates, you know, um... So and they and they were still doing that right up until actually you know post pattern they were still visiting primary and secondary schools and telling principals that they shouldn't bring the RUC in to talk to children about road traffic for example so there was a twofold thing going on you had the uh, Republican movement as a whole who really made it no go areas for the RUC and then you had the RUC who could be quite brutal at times with people as well and I describe um, some of that in term in the book you know in terms of riots that I. Obviously, was at you know as a teenager quite exciting to be at you know, but um, brutal also. Now, abuse most frequently it happens uh, among people who are close to mm-hmm. the abused person, and that was the case for you. Well, it was a. I actually wasn't that close to him. I, I certainly had a, a reluctance around him because I had seen him boot a younger cousin in the back a few years previously. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when he, they had just moved in, so he'd moved in with my father's sister. And in, that's the family connection. Yes. And that's what I meant by yeah, closeness. Yeah. Into know. the house next door. But I think there was a process and this was the point that I was making then. I, I then grew from tolerating him to probably liking him because, you know, I played guitar, he played guitar, there was a bit of crack to be had. And then he uh, had this conversation with me where he asked me to move guns for the IRA and that's where the fright then kicked in. and I didn't move them. But within a few days of that conversation, then the abuse had started. So it was a very, very uh, quick thing that happened. You know, they had literally just moved into that house, I think, a week or two previously. Now, what was your reservation about doing any work for the IRA? Because in the book, it seems at times Sinn Féin and the IRA are utterly interchangeable. Well, I think I think yes, but there was also a distinction too. I mean, there were lots of people within Sinn Féin who weren't in the IRA and then there were lots of people who were. And, you know, I, I grew up in a, a kind of different environment. Like my mother, for example, a lot of people would use the term Brits for British soldiers. My mother would never let us, us use that term. We had to use the term soldiers. We had to use the term police where other people were calling them peelers or RUC men. My mother was very strict about things like that in terms of not dehumanising people. So I had like the two things going on. Almost if you cut someone down the middle, we had a house where people were non-political. And then I had this whole other environment that I was starting to be subsumed into. You know, I was part of the Cahill entity, that unit and, and all of that that came with it. But when someone comes and and someone says they're from the IRA and they ask you to move guns as a 16-year-old kid and someone who's just turned 16, Pat, it's a very, very different thing. I mean, you're talking about being faced potentially with arrest and going away to jail for the rest of your life. And that was very much in, in my mind. And actually, they, they spoke about a young uh, woman who had been arrested and said that she didn't get much time. That was the phrase that was used, you know, and you're not a red light. Um, so, you know, I wouldn't have brought attention to the place. And they, they went through a whole... Um, thing as to how they wanted these guns moved. But as far as you were concerned, that risk um, to your future was just too great to undertake anything yeah. like that. I'm not even sure I consciously thought about it, but I automatically knew that it was not the thing that I was, you know, the hairs mm. in the back of my neck were standing up at this conversation. I mean, you're, you're effectively, everyone knows or everyone knew because it was said repeatedly 
that if someone did something or joined the IRA, there were only two ways it was going to go. You were going to go into a coffin and you were going to go to jail. I just finished my GCSEs. I was going yeah. to do my A-levels. I didn't want to be doing anything for the IRA, you know, so. Yeah. Now, you mentioned the abuse started uh, shortly thereafter. Uh, you replied with a few drinks um, and then it started. Now, you, your graphic slightly in the first incident and then you just refer to the nature that it repeated and repeated and ultimately it would be categorized as rape so Mm -hmm. uh, but you don't dwell on it but that deliberately so that that, yeah not to to offer a prurient volume rather than uh, an accurate account but you decided when it started and you were startled into wakefulness by his interference with you that you would pretend you were sleeping yeah, I pretended that I was asleep, I think, as a coping mechanism. I was embarrassed, um, but I was also frightened. And I thought that, I, like, even in my own head, I didn't want to admit to myself that my abuser even knew what he was doing to me. I mean, that that's the level that it was at, but it was a split-second decision that probably, um, you know, I probably will always have a regret, a regret about that for the rest of my life. And I remember even at times thinking, you know, if I let him know that I'm awake, he might strangle me or, you know, what's going to happen. I wasn't sure what, what exactly was going to happen, but I know that um, I made it much more difficult for myself by pretending yeah. to be asleep. I was fighting this every step of the way in my head. And one of the things that I did was dig my fingernails into my skin to try to deflect from what was happening. Um, and I think there's also an outer body experience that comes along with that because of the trauma. So the nature of abuse is insidious and I took all of the responsibility for what was happening on and then I also thought in some stupid way that when I returned if I was on the sofa that this wasn't happening to anybody else because I felt like damaged goods after the first time. You felt Um, that you could be protecting someone by being the sacrificial victim in this case. Looking back at it, yes, that's exactly what it was but it was a very silly thing. You, know? uh, you mentioned your GCSEs and you had done very well in the GCSEs and you were heading for A-levels, but that's not the way it panned out. Your, your straight A's did not happen in A-levels. Yeah, I mean, I floated probably through uh, my last two years in school on a uh, cocktail of coding. Um, I, I got two B's and a C in my A-level, so, you know, good enough grades, I suppose. for But not what but you not, might have expected for yourself. Was, well, not what other people had said that no. I would have gotten. That was because the GCSE results were good, you know. I drifted through school. I went to the library um, and I put my head in the desk with the broadsheets and fell asleep, you know, in between classes. And then I yeah. got up and went down and, you know, did, uh, went through the motions. I your behaviour at home had changed and your your mother detected something was wrong and at one point she actually says to you, Maria, did anybody touch you? She did, yeah. Um, and it is a huge regret of mine that I didn't. You rolled over, turned away from her and didn't tell her what you, you might have told her and that's the, the big regret. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but at that point I had been told, you know, I couldn't even tell. I, could, I wasn't allowed to tell anybody and I couldn't tell my parents what was happening as well because at that point in time the IRA were involved in it. So, you know, it it was a very uh, strange place to be. Now, that business of getting the IRA involved, who did you finally tell and then how did this uh, IRA investigation, which has been labelled even in passing by Mary Lou MacDonald as a kangaroo court? I disclosed three individuals. The first one... um, Siobhan O'Hanlon actually um, I thought I was pregnant as a result of rape and instead of going doing what any person would do and get a pregnancy test I just automatically assumed that I was and that gives you just an indication of just how naive I was at the time Um, and I you know we had a conversation around it and then continued to talk about it 
And I also told two other individuals, one of whom had been convicted um, of an offence for the IRA and the other person who, who hadn't. And um, one of those women went then and told the IRA without my knowledge. And they then came, I think, around a year later. Yeah. You didn't go to them. They no, came to you. No. Um, and, and this investigation happened where there was an actual confrontation between you and the man that you said had abused you and he denied it. He did, of course. You know, um, what would not have happened only, to him if he had said to the IRA, yes, I, I'm a, an abuser. I would. I mean, there would have been consequences. Well, I'm, I'm not quite sure there would have been. I think um, by the stage, and this just for your listeners, there were two IRA investigations and the second one started on the, the first one culminated in March 2000, heading into April. And then on the 23rd of July, another young person alleged abuse against that individual and then another one. So at the even but at the point... That was the turning point, wasn't it? And this is why I say I don't think there would have been consequence. The consequence was actually when the IRA realised that there were three... Uh, children alleging abuse against this individual and then when my father said that he wanted him handed over in the RUC custody and I said that I was going to report it suddenly that man disappeared you know and he disappeared from what the IRA said was house arrest so the consequence was that the person was gone out of the jurisdiction as far as we were concerned and we didn't ask for it you know. Do you understand uh, why they didn't take it more seriously because you came from, if you like, a nationalist royalty, given that your great uncle was Joe Cowell. And I would have imagined if someone said, you know, the the great niece of Joe Cowell has been allegedly abused by one of our members. I mean, that's just a, a, a sin, as I say, against um, that well, one of the founders. Well, I think now, looking back at it retrospectively, you know, that it probably took, you know, the first investigation and I use that term I mean that's their terminology not mine started in October November 99 and culminated in March 2000 and I think looking back on it it lasted as long as it did probably because they were trying to get me to say that it didn't happen so that that would then take the issue off the table and they wouldn't have to deal with it you know that I, I think they were afraid and, and precisely because I was a cattle and it could cause embarrassment to the Republican movement. I think they were afraid of that information going out and they used the phrase to me repeatedly, this is in the public domain, because I had told people and they had no control over that information then. Now it wasn't in the public domain. You know, I had disclosed to three people on three separate occasions um, for no other reason than I needed to spew out what was happening to me. And I also disclosed relatively quickly and if you look at abuse, some people don't talk maybe for 30 or 40 years I was telling people within a matter of, you know, months. So I was obviously crying out for help. And I think to answer your question that the, the IRA probably swooped in to try to deal with this because they were afraid of, of the embarrassment that it would cause if the information then got out there because this man was uh, feared within the Upper Springfield area, but he was also in a position of influence within community restorative justice. And that's that was the issue. There are all sorts of moments in this book which are extraordinary. I mean, you go to a meeting in Jerry Adams' office, he's not there. Um, but a slip of paper is handed over uh, to, I think, your father. No, uh, it was me. It was to you. Just okay. me. It was me and the, the woman. Siobhan had actually opened the door and, and let the two of us in. It was a post-it note. And the post-it said, what do you want to happen to him, yeah. the abuser? 
then consulting with your dad, he says he wants them handed over to the RUC. Well, no, they were two separate occasions. So it was just me and this woman in that room with the post-it note. And so I was then asked, and I think that the intention behind that conversation was to make me feel responsible for anything that happened afterwards, which I think is despicable. Separately, Siobhan O'Hanlon was having a conversation with my father in a car in the Ballamurphy area where she was a bit more explicit and she asked him if he wanted him shot. And he then said, well, you know, I want them handed in the RUC custody, but this is a problem that's your problem. You are the people that have involved yourselves in this, you know. Yeah. He was saying it. it I mean, the, the, even talking to Joe Cal, your, your late uh, great uncle, um, he saw the issue was that having already had an investigation by the IRA, in quotes, that that would become part of, of an RUC investigation. If you hadn't had that IRA investigation, you could have gone. And this is from your great uncle, Joe Cahill. You could have gone to the RUC. Yeah, and that's a, and he explained why, um, you know, he had known of other abuse victims that were unconnected with this case in its entirety that had gone to the RUC and had been treated, you know, decently enough, I think it was the phrase. But he... Um, he was very clear about it and I was very clear that because the IRA had involved themselves that there was no option of going to the RUC because the mm. questions that would have been asked, look, the IRA would never have allowed me. They wouldn't just not have allowed that chance to happen. And actually they took me or a woman took me to a solicitor at the time and she did the talking and the solicitor at the time had said, you know, the RUC would be interested in this individual if he was connected yeah. with republicanism. And and that permeates much of the narrative that follows even to the point, and we know Sir Keir Starmer uh, thought that you'd been treated very badly by the, the prosecution uh, services. Um, in terms of the the Jerry Adams involvement in all of this. I mean, you met him on a number of occasions. How much of a thorn in the side of Sinn Féin? I mean, Jerry Adams has always denied being a member of the IRA. In your book, it appears quite logically he was rather more closer to the IRA than uh, he would like us to believe. But the political project of Sinn Féin, how much of a thorn were you seeing in in the side of that particular endeavour? You mean at the time or since? Well, at the time, you know, realising what this could mean and then since, of course, a major thorn. I think, again, I I can only kind of look back in hindsight and I think at the time that there was a very concerted effort on behalf of the Republican movement as a whole and I include Sinn Féin in that in terms of trying to contain the issue. They obviously, it had hit the newspapers by August 2000, which was when I then started seeing Adams. I think the the paper came out on the Sunday, on the Tuesday, the Monday I was meeting with representatives of the IRA Army Council and on the Tuesday I was meeting with Jerry Adams. It was all very quick Um, and that those meetings continued until 2006. So they were very much, I love you, we love you, you need to look after yourself type of meetings. You know, containment, I think, is probably the best description of it. And again, they'll deny that. They say they were trying to help. I think I would hate to see their worst efforts if that's what help was. But um, certainly since, I mean, once I, I went to the police and I made the complaint, and that probably is proof that I was not asked to go to the RUC at the time. I mean, there was panic within the Republican movement when I went and, and made those police complaints and I give very lengthy ABE interviews that you know you go to the car unit you give your your evidence on camera um, the way in which Republicans dealt with that like uh, the police for example rather than question the witnesses who were connected with Sinn Féin um, their solicitor the, the, the ombudsman report describes the policeman coming into a room and a, a meeting being confrontational and then solicitor statements were handed through 
Um, not in all the cases, but in most of them. Jerry Adams, certainly, he uh, gave a solicitor statement through as his, his right to do so, but he didn't allow himself to be questioned. You know, um, Sinn Féin called that full cooperation with the police. I don't. Uh, so since then, once I then waived anonymity, I think it's in the book. You can see it. I mean, I hope that I've documented it forensically. Yeah. I think it's appalling the way in which I was treated by the Republican movement. I mean, the references in the back of the book uh, refer to everything that is in the public domain, including in my own programme. There's a yes. reference to uh, a couple of references to uh, things that were said on, on my programme. So, uh, you know, you do buttress your account with uh, all of these uh, references. Um, Mary Lou MacDonald and you, it's not a friendship made in heaven. It's certainly not cordial anyway, you know, um, and I wouldn't expect it to be and I don't think she would She would expect it to be nor seek it either. Um, I obviously have a difficulty. I think when you people read the book, they'll understand why. You know, they can look at all of the statements which Mary Lou MacDonald made on public record um, in all manner of radio stations and in newspaper interviews. And I've been very careful to document all of that. Because I want people to read it and make up their own minds. I think there's only one conclusion that you can come to at the end of it, but people can make base their own subjective opinions on it. And I include the meeting with Mary Lou MacDonald in November 2018 in the book. Um, I think there has been a slight shift from her uh, because before she was apologising for processes not being in place at the time, um, where she's now talking about no organisation should investigate abuse, but still as the figurehead for Sinn Féin, she has a responsibility and I, I've said this before. I was questioned obviously by the IRA on some occasions in Sinn Féin party headquarters on the Falls Road in West Belfast and I think that if you're the leader of a political party and she wasn't involved at the time but she has a responsibility as a party leader to do something about that and the people who were involved in that investigation at the time and I use that term loosely are still in the periphery of Belfast Sinn Féin. Some of them canvassed for the Sinn Féin party at election time, for example. You know, and I, I think if Sinn Féin could do anything, you know, I would like those people not to be involved in activities like that. I would like the party to cast them out because I think that that would be the correct thing to do. But I also think that the party should admit and not just say, if this happened, it was wrong. I think they should admit there was an IRA investigation. I think they should admit that they know or very senior pe- people within Sinn Féin know and leaving Mary Lou MacDonald aside from that, I think what they should do is say Maria Cahill was brought into a room to face a rapist and that was appalling and it shouldn't have happened. They've never done that in all the time that I have been public. And in fact, they allowed uh, doubt and puffs of smoke to be cast around my credibility. And what actually saved me um, in, in terms of being able to prove that what I was saying to be true was not only the Sir Keir Starmer report and the public apologies from the DPP, the then DPP and the Chief Constable, but the Police Ombudsman report, which found intelligence contemporaneously from the year 2000, from August 2000, on three strands, CID, Special Branch and the RUC, were receiving reports from that time suggesting that the person who is alleged to have abused me was abusing children and that the IRA were investigating it. And I've since gone back, you know, to... XRUC people and tried to decode this intelligence and RUC and Special Branch was most probably well, or could well have been recordings if you like and uh, information coming through to CID was most probably a human source of intelligence so they had all of this from that time in the year 2000 and, and I was out publicly in 2014 and it didn't surface until 2018 mm-hmm. and during all of that time 
Sinn Féin allowed that to continue. They allowed the online abuse to continue with... Now, in fairness to Mary Lou Macdonald, I have to be fair to her, she did condemn online abuse. Um, but I think the party as a whole could have done more to stop it. Um, would you be seen as someone letting down the cause? You know, on the back of the book, um, you write, the Irish Republic stands at a crossroads and looks set to elect a political party that the Garda Commissioner and Chief Constable say is still directed by the IRA. And you would be seen as someone who should maybe have shut up, said nothing in, in, in terms of the greater cause, the greater project, which would be to bring Sinn Féin to power north and south of the border. Very much so. I think if you come from within any um, large dysfunctional family, which is how I describe the Republican movement as a whole, you know, and you come from an area like West Belfast, if you put your head above the parapet and you speak out about anything, you're isolated immediately and then the rumour mill starts swirling, you know, and I, it was both an intoxicating place to be in, a dangerous place to be, an exciting and insidious position to mm. be in, in terms of being in around that whole periphery and cacophony of republicanism. But the minute that you step outside it, and we've seen this publicly with other cases, you know, pickets on houses in West Belfast, graffiti was put on the walls in relation to, to myself. There's a photograph of it in the book. You know, I document the, the behaviour towards me. From Maria Cahill bores me. Yeah. And that was you know. from December 2014. <laughs> it's probably a fair opinion, but it shouldn't have been talked mm. on the, the walls of West Belfast and certainly not facing the area that I was abused as a child. You know, yeah. I don't think it's acceptable. And in fairness, the minute we went up and took that photograph, uh, by the next day, I think the Republicans realised that it was probably not the smartest move and people were out painting over that particular bit of graffiti. Yeah. But yes, I think, look, um, I also say in the book there's nothing worse than a hurt, angry, articulate woman. And I think if you have an organisation which is very much a ma- macho organisation and patriarchal, that the minute that a, a young woman, and I'm not so young now, I'm 42, but the minute that the, a person comes forward to talk about anything, uh, particularly a case of abuse and all that it brings with it, you kind of um, people are not not going to be happy. Yeah. You know? um, the the final thing really is about uh, you know what are the unspeakable crimes that must not be associated with any movement and the abuse of children is certainly uh, one of them and we know. Uh, it's in the public domain about Jerry Adams' brother Liam, who abused his own daughter and was convicted uh, for so doing. You mentioned, you know, Jerry Adams didn't speak up maybe early enough about that about this, and um, you go into some detail about that. But it's an extraordinary thing that uh, commemorations of terrible deeds where lives were taken are still okay, but you know the the notion of any member of an organisation abusing a child is in some way completely off limits. Yeah, but I think there's always going to be that contradiction within any um, institution. You know, they will always come down to protect their reputation. And I've, look, I write political columns from time to time, so I've tried to explore this. And I've done so, I think, in the book. There, might, there is a chapter there in relation to the hunger strikes, for example, you know, where um, people will commemorate and lionise some pe- you know, people who, who died on hunger strike and they are heroic figures within the Republican community but their victims are very you know never almost never spoken about and certainly not at Republican commemorations um, and I think that the the same is true if you have a movement that like the church for example in, in relation to the Catholic Church abuse victims clamped down immediately right throughout the world in terms of trying to protect their reputation mm. and the people who disclosed abuse became collateral damage 
it's the same in this instance in relation to the IRA and Sinn Féin. And what Sinn Féin will tell you is that the IRA have left the stage and therefore they can wash their hands off it and they're not responsible. Yeah. And that's why I will always go back to Adams's phrase in terms of corporate responsibility. Sinn Féin are corporately responsible for this, you know. You quote from um, the eulogy, I suppose, to uh, Thomas McElwee. He came from a close-knit family in Balahi and was admired by all his comrades as someone who instilled confidence and belief in all around him. Tom was a typical young county dairy man, kind and good-natured, full of life and with a craze for cars. And then you go on. There was no mention of 26-year-old Yvonne Dunlop burned to death in her father's shop, Alley Cats, as a result of a firebomb planted by Thomas McElwee's IRA cell in 1976. And that is that contradiction I'm talking about. Yeah, not only is it a contradiction, but Sinn Féin have done quite well out of the hunger strikers. You know, they've raised an absolute fortune on the backs of commemorating them, you know, put their faces on T-shirts and fridge magnets and all manner of things. And in fact, on one occasion, one Republican entity actually put their faces inexplicably on a dinner plate to sell, you know. So I think... um, also, there. what I try to do with this book, though, is to try and explain that everybody has the capacity to change and also the paramilitaries are people too. So there are people in Northern Ireland, three and a half thousand victims who are much worse off than I am in the fact that they never came back. You know, they lost their lives because someone took them or took a decision to take them. But their families are all nursing their hurt. And equally, there are very many people who became involved in paramilitary activity on all sides who are human beings at the end of the day and who go about their daily life you know they live and that's how they were able to survive for so long you know they came from and were within the community people have done awful inhumane despicable things I think where the difference is in relation to this is that they have yet to admit it and you know I'm slightly different I already know what happened to me so I have my own answers there are other people who are seeking answers in relation to the death of their loved ones And they will probably never get them from the Republican movement because in 2014, in relation to a blog that Jerry Adams was writing about how the IRA dealt with sex offenders, he said that the IRA had left the stage and therefore there was no, quote, corporate way of verifying matters. And I think that that actually was missed at the time. I think Paul Paul Bew actually raised it maybe in the House of Lords, but it largely got overlooked by by the media because there was so much going on. The British government have brought through a legacy bill in the last few weeks. How on earth is anybody who was affected by the Republican movement ever going to get answers in anything to do with their case if there's no corporate way of verifying it because the IRA supposedly have left the stage? The book is called Rough Beast, My Story and the Reality of Sinn Féin. It's published by Head of Zeus and it's author Maria Kahl. Thank you very much for joining Thank us you. in studio. Appreciate it, Pat. Thank you. The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance. Weekdays at 9am on News Talk.